listeners, readers, welcome back for part three of our three-part lecture on Elena Ferrante's The Lost Daughter. So we're going to talk today about the doll and some of the significance of the doll and how well this doll, I mean, it's so weird to be talking about the significance of of a doll. And yet she really comes to stand for a lot of very important things and a lot of stuff that happens, I think, is very, uh, you know, you might sort of look over or overlook it because it's a doll, and yet uh, it is very significant. Then we're going to talk about maternity and what I think is kind of the the most arguable kind of salient thing that you would want to take away as kind of your message. Or, or it's more like my explanation for why I think she has all of this proliferation and why there is the creepiness. And it's a it's sort of a... Um, my attempt, I guess, to sort of tie the whole thing together. It was a book where I finished and you're like, wait, what just happened? Like you, like you are left with this sense of like, what am I meant to take away from this? And, and I did a lot of thinking and did a lot of sleuthing in the scope of the text. And I think I have a pretty good argument for what we are supposed to take away. And then last, we are gonna talk about the ending. And this is a significant ending because again, there is a certain circularity So we're going to talk about the ending, but in the context of the beginning of the book. Okay, so we're going to dive in about the doll. We're going to look on page 62. So we had spoken before about some of the like gross things about the doll, and we're going to take a look. uh, So in, in part, we were just talking about the creepiness and kind of this ratcheting up of this tension and this kind of question of like, how crazy is our narrator? Like how off her rocker is Lita? And in one of the interviews I listened to, the guy was saying that she was, you know, psychotic and she, he was talking about how she was so damaged. And, and my sense was that this is not someone who's psychotic or damaged. I mean, she's like a little, she's, you know, she's a little bit like, uh, you know, I don't know, she's having some, some sights and some thoughts and she's doing some things that are maybe not like mainstream. But my sense is that she's someone who has been under an enormous amount of stress, largely because she is a mother. So, we're gonna um, take a look at the doll and the ways in which her interactions with the doll, I think really sort of bring that, uh, sort of support that thesis, that this is someone who is is having a bit of a crisis um, because of this unresolved feeling, both with her mother, she is a daughter of her mother, and then also as a mother of her two daughters. Okay, so on 62 here, we are looking at this top part here. Poor creatures who came out of my belly all alone, now on the other side of the world. So she's talking about her daughters in Canada. I placed the doll on my knees as if for company. Why had I taken her? So importantly, that is not a question. So it's it's important in the sense that she's not, she's she's sort of uh, thinking about it, but, but she's not sort of questioning herself. She's not kind of going all the way there in terms of having it be an interrogative sentence. It's just a declarative sentence. I mean, it's not declarative because it begins with an interrogative, but uh, there's no question mark. Why had I taken her? She guarded the love of Nina and Elena, their bond, their reciprocal passion. She was the shining testimony of perfect motherhood. I brought her to my breast. I mean, like it's a little, it's a, well, I mean, is it? I guess it's weird. Yes, 
definitely weird. But also, like, this is a woman who's really digging deeply into her role as a mother and also as her role as, of, of a daughter and sort of someone who wants to kind of be neither of those things and really wants to be independent. You know, her daughters are off in Canada, but she talks to them every day on the phone. So it's not as if she's estranged from them. And she still very much feels, you know, all of their anxiety and the weight of them. But so you have this idea here of her really using this doll, seeing it as this, in this case, as this kind of perfect reflection of these, the passion between the mother and the daughter. And the passion, the word passion in that case, that, that's again sort of this very kind of uh, like this undercurrent of sexuality. And there is a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of kissing on the mouth between the mom and the daughter, which is fine. I mean, that can be also very sort of non-sexualized, but there's a lot of sort of this notion of, um, of, of all sorts of different erotic kind of passions that run through not just the mother-daughter, but through a lot of people in the book. Okay, so she, she has this, this idea of their perfect motherhood, and then she is nursing this baby. She's attempting to breastfeed the doll because you get the sense that she wants a piece of that. She wants to be part of this perfect kind of uh, vision of motherhood. I mentioned before that it's a little, it was a little bit sort of Madonna and child kind of thing, um, which obviously in Italy, which is a Catholic country, you have this very strong overlay of Catholicism. And it, so the, the fact that the father is not in the picture at this point, I think is significant. He's not there during the week. He's only there on the weekends. Okay, then we're gonna look at page 85, gross. This is a gross part of the book um, yet again. So right here down at the bottom, I mentioned that the, the baby's, not the baby, the doll's stomach is full of this kind of murky, sandy, dark liquid that keeps kind of spilling out. At one point she talks about how the, the doll is very much like she was when she was pregnant with Bianca, sorry, when she was pregnant with Bianca, her first daughter, she was fine. But with the second daughter, she was vomiting a lot. So at one point she's making the baby vomit, making the, the doll vomit up this, this black murky liquid because it, it, she's sort of reliving her own, it's literally cathartic, you know, she's like, like expelling all of this stuff in kind of reliving um, this dark period of maternity. Okay, so in order to look at this kind of final part about the baby doll, we are going to look at pages 124 and 125. So she's now in, still in the apartment with the baby. I myself was playing now. A mother is only a daughter who plays. So again, this is that idea of mothers and daughters. In this proliferation, they're also still together. They're also kind of always melded together. So she is both a daughter and a mother. She's being a little girl because she's playing with the doll, but she's also playing that she is the mother. Um, I should have noticed right away as a girl, this soft reddish engorgement that I'm now squeezing with the metal of the tweezers. So when she's saying she should have meant she should have noticed it as a girl, she's, she's essentially still, she's inhabiting herself as a young girl. So she is kind of all of these things at once. Um, this soft reddish engorgement that I'm now squeezing with the metal of the tweezers, accept it for what it is. Poor creature with nothing human about her. Here's the baby that Lanucha stuck in the stomach of her doll to play at, making it pregnant like Aunt Rosaria's. At one point, the, the little girl Elena wanted her baby doll to be pregnant. I extracted it carefully. It was a worm from the beach. 
So she literally, not only is there the sandy, silty brown liquid that keeps coming out, but finally she pulls a worm out of the, the mouth of the baby doll. And when she talks in the beginning about this, uh, uh, this red protuberance, there's all, you know, it could be phallic, it could be birth, it could be the birth of one of her daughters. There's all of this stuff about the lips and the mouth as, as expelling something, which I think we can take here to be pretty firmly uh, vaginal, not just, the, not just the mouth. And then at the end, right before this important space break, we have her saying, I have a horror of crawling things, but for that clot of humors, I felt a naked pity. So this idea of a clot is very menstrual. It's very like vaginal. It's very like miscarriage. It's very, um, there's a sense of, of bloodiness and this kind of creepy crawly thing. And the humors, you know, sort of, um, you know, this notion of the human body as being made up of all of these different liquids like bile and blood and feces and urine, that all of those humors together with this clot speaks to not just this idea of this repulsive worm, but this, this, this sort of like a, some sort of human form or some sort of um, like, like the impossibility of a human form. But you have this, um, this, on her part, she feels pity for it. She feels sorry for it. She feels badly for it instead of being repulsed, which a lot of the book is all about her being disgusted and repulsed. So for her to feel pity for this disgusting thing is really, um, is significant. Okay. So we're going to move on from the doll thing. Oh, the other thing too is the worm coming out of the mouth of the baby uh, is definitely very phallic. The idea of like, you know, a longer worm, um, you know, that's more of a phallic thing. It's when it's a red protuberance that it's more like potentially like the crowning head of a, of a baby um, that turns into a creepy crawly worm. Blah. Um, okay, so we have all of these interactions that she is having with the doll, and ultimately, at the end of the book, she in fact does tell when when um, when Nina comes to the apartment because she wants the keys so she can get with Gino, the beach boy. Um, you know, she she is going to have the key, uh, and at that point, uh, Leda, our narrator, gives her a hat pin. So there's this idea um, when when she's coming to the apartment of the hat is a very vaginal symbol in any kind of Freudian interpretation. And a pin or a hat pin or, you know, a knife, anything like that is a phallic symbol. So in this case, you have, essentially, she has this new hat, which is, you know, her vagina given to her by her husband. And then we have Lita giving her this hat pin, which is essentially, you know, she's, she, Lita, in fact, uses it to secure the hat pin. She happens to be wearing her hair up to secure the hat with the hat pin. So there's this idea of penetration. There's this idea of sexual penetration that's happening. And then before she can leave, she um, shows her the doll. She gives the doll back to the mother of the little girl who owns the doll. And th so there's this sense of, of, of um, wanting to give this doll back. And she says she doesn't know why she took it, but she says, I'm leaving. So we have this whole kind of denouement that is happening at the end of the novel. Uh, but what's important to look at here, which we're going to um, dig into that in a minute, but when you look at sort of the strangeness of this novel, I think it's important um, to, to think about sort of the larger issue here, or else it just seems like a bunch of weirdness, which it is a little bit, but it does really, I think, convince me that there's a much larger, uh, you know, sort of message. And one of those messages, and it's throughout the whole book, is this tension between ambition and motherhood. So she cannot be both a mother and a professor. 
And in fact, she has to leave her daughters for three years. And it turns out she goes and has an affair with this very esteemed professor. And it's a very happy time for her. Uh, but then you also have, so there, there's a sense of, of ambition as being something that's always in conflict with the idea of being a mother. But there's also a sense, like a lot of this horror and a lot of this kind of, um, this undercurrent of, 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 well, both the sexuality and also just of all the anxiety and the horror has to do with the responsibility of children. And it's named many, many times throughout the novel. For example, at one point, um, she says, children are always cause for worry. This is very early in the book. A little later, she says, children are a vortex of anxiety. And then later she says she had a constant stomach ache from a sense of guilt. Uh, and then she says that her own mother said that your heart shatters. And then Nina agrees with Lita's mother and says, yes, it's a shattering of both your heart and yourself. So there's this idea of um, in the end of the of the novel, when novella, when she's returning the doll, the only way that she can explain it is this kind of shattered self that she felt like she was sort of um, coming apart, literally like falling apart. And I think one of the ways we can look at that is it's it's reflected in this proliferation. So you have all of these different women essentially are the same person and they're all different kind of manifestations of different ages and different stages that Lita herself has gone through. So when we think about all of the kind of weirdnesses of the doll, I think the idea, kind of the main point here, is that mothers are never truly separate from their daughters. It's impossible. It's impossible to, to truly become an individual because you are always connected. Um, even if you're not together, you are in fact connected. Okay, so um, we're gonna look at page 41. Even the mothers who are truly menacing, like the mother of Lita, who's really you know, verbally abusive, if not outright physically abusive, uh, she is very, the mothers are very menacing. And in fact, Lita herself is often menacing with her children. She says terrible things to them. She throws the doll of Bianca out into the street in this terrible way. Um, you know, she does things that are really damaging to them. And yet you get a sense that it's it's because she cannot stand the, the, the sort of the lack of individuality that she feels. She's too close to them. So let's look at page 41. Um, so this idea of, of, of being like of never being able to separate from the daughter is something that we see stated really clearly. So down at the bottom of 41, it seemed to me that I was Elena or Bianca when she was lost, but perhaps I was only myself as a child climbing back out of oblivion. So at one point she talks about leaving Naples as uh, you know this idea of, of, of sort of leaving behind her family. But really what she's talking about, I would argue, is she's talking about leaving her mother. Um, okay, so then we have another example of this kind of um, enmeshment that is happening between these mothers and daughters on page 90. When she's talking about Rosaria, who is um, the the... Uh, sister-in-law of Nina. She's the woman who's very pregnant and who's um, really kind of a, a commanding figure in lots of ways, which makes sense that the woman who's about to give birth, who's about to multiply herself, who's about to proliferate, that that woman is a very powerful presence. I imagine she'll give birth without strain. In two hours, she'll expel herself and at the same time, another just like her. So again, this idea of, of all of these people as essentially being one thing 
is this idea of, of the inability of mothers and daughters to cleanly and, and sort of completely separate. Okay, and then we're gonna look at 117 and 118. So kind of up at the top here, um, she's explaining toward the end of the novel here, she's, ex she's attempting to explain to Nina why she left her daughters. I loved them too much and it seemed to me that love for them would keep me from becoming myself. So you have this sense of her very clearly understanding that she would not be able to be herself. You know, in the beginning of her marriage with her husband, they're very much equals. And she has this real, you know, academic career in front of her that she's very invested in. And she just cannot do it. She can't seem to, to sort of get it done. Um, it, I mean, and you get the sense that she can't do it because she is a mother. Um, and on the next page, um, then it, it, it's interesting, too, because Nina, when she is hearing this, She's, she really doesn't like the idea of this woman as having left her daughters. It's, it's as a lot of people would think, she's very judgmental about the idea of, of her as leaving and wants to be convinced that she was miserable when she was away, when in fact she was not miserable at all. That was one part of the movie that really stuck out for me and felt so real and so compelling is when Olivia Coleman says something to the effect that you know it was, it was the happiest time of her life was when she was away from these daughters she had given birth to. Um, you know, really very much herself, feeling herself. Um, on the top of page 18, um, basically Nina is asking her if she returned because she, you know, felt badly. No, I returned for the same reason I left, for love of myself. I felt more useless and desperate without them than with them. So again, she's not arguing that what she did is not selfish. She's totally owning the fact that it's selfish. In fact, she's insisting, but it's what she, the conclusion that she has come to very quickly here is that she can't, she can't be herself with her daughters and she also cannot be without them. So essentially she's, it's impossible for her to be an individual anymore because she is fated to be sort of, you know, enmeshed with these daughters of hers. So if you look at all of the women on the beach and the women are certainly more present and more kind of prevalent and more central than any of the male characters who basically all have the same name. Um, I mean, the women do too, but it's the men, I think it's a different reason. The men all have, literally their name is all like John, you know, like they're all, they're all just kind of, um, like a non-entity really, except the one that like literally looks pregnant. But all of the women, you have this sense of them all as proliferating, but all uh, understanding the fact that, that as, as women and as mothers and daughters, that, there, that there's this inherent inability to be a single person. I mean, if you go back to a bunch of the Freudian stuff, like boys and their mothers are, are different. You know, they're just biologically different. And, you know, whether or not you ascribe to all of the Freudian stuff and whether or not you think that is significant doesn't really matter because what she's doing here is this very sort of interesting, at least in my opinion, a very interesting uh, analysis and sort of exploration of one woman's experience of how difficult it is to, uh, to individuate. Okay, um, and then we are going to talk about the ending. So we're gonna go back and look at pages nine and 10, and we're just going to, let's see here. I am just going to read this, this bottom part here uh, from when she is in the hospital. So she says, in the hospital, this is after the car crash, literally first page of the book. In the hospital, when I opened my eyes, I saw myself again hesitating for a fraction of a second before the flat sea. 
Maybe that was why later I convinced myself that it wasn't a dream, but a fantasy of alarm that lasted until I woke up in the hospital room. So there is a sense here of, of not being totally clear. We're like, is it a dream? Is it a fantasy? Is she in the hospital? Like, did she actually have a car crash? And I think we can argue fairly well that in fact she did. We're gonna look at the very end of the book, which I think supports this idea. And importantly, this very first scene, chapter one here, is um, it, it's after the end of the book, chronologically. So this is at the very end of her vacation, she has this car crash. Okay, and then she says, the doctors told me that my car had ended up against the guardrail, but without critical consequences. The only serious injury was in my left side, an inexplicable lesion. So importantly, um, I don't think I mentioned this. Uh, oh, no, we're gonna look at it right now. Okay, so you have that idea that the only, the only problem that the doctors can find is this lesion kind of in her heart area. Is that what it says? Um, was in my left side. Yeah, so like a, near her heart, essentially. So we're gonna look at page 114. This is so crazy. Okay, so she says um, when she's at the flea market and she runs into Nina, and this is when Nina's trying to broker, um, you know, her little liaison with Gino in uh, the apartment of Lita. So um, Lita finds this long hat pin that has this amber, um, you know, sort of ornament on it, and she's going to give it to, uh, to Nina. I arranged the hat carefully and used the long pin with the amber handle to fix it in her hair. There, it won't fall off, but be careful for the child. Disinfect it when you get home. You could easily get a bad scratch. So I wrote in the margin here, plot thickens, because if you're reading carefully and someone's like, oh, by the way, make sure you disinfect that, it's very Chekhovian in the sense that like, what, if there's a gun that's introduced in the first act, it has to go off by the end of the act. I think that's the saying. People used to say by the end of the play, but I think he actually says it has to happen in the act, in the first act. Um, so you have this thing like, uh-oh, be careful. You, you, but it's interesting because she's talking about it maybe scratching the daughter when in fact what happens, dun dun dun, is, um, wait, where is it? It's on page 137. So we're gonna skip ahead to 137 and then down on 137 here, she freed the hat from the pin. So again, penis, vagina. Um, she freed the hat from the pin. She laid both objects on the table in the living room. And I thought, looking at the black amber, the long shining shaft, that she had worn the hat just now to show me that she was using her my gift. So, I mean, the long shining shaft, I mean, this is like, if we didn't already recognize this as a phallic symbol, this is pretty uh, pretty significant. And also the idea of it shining, there's this idea of, of wetness, there's this idea of, um, and also her husband gave her the hat, so you have the like a stand-in for the husband, and yet um, you have Lita is the one who is you know sort of inserting the hat pin, and then we have Nina wielding the shaft in the next thing. So we're going to look at one forty up at the top here on one forty. I felt a pain in my left side, swift as a burn. I looked down and saw the point of the pin that was shooting out of my skin above my stomach, just under my ribs. 
I mean, this is crazy. She's getting stabbed with the hat pin that she gave to this woman with this phallic symbol. So now we have uh, Nina, who's again wielding this, this shaft, this pin, who's stabbing this woman in part because the woman has stolen her baby's baby doll. Um, so, so it has caused a lot of problems, but also just because Elena Ferrante is really making a statement here. So when we have this pain, so then we understand that this is this this is the pain that she was feeling. So um, if we look on 130, oh, we're gonna go back to 139 very quickly here. And she says, um, so this is this is the confession here. Uh, you took her. I nodded yes, and she jumped, leaving the keys on the table as if they burned her. Why? And then she says, I don't know. And then she says, take the keys, Nina. I'm leaving tonight. The house will be empty till the end of the month. So the, those facts right there are part of the reason why I think we can believe that it's not a fantasy and it's not a dream. In fact, she gets into her car because she's packing her bags. She's giving back the doll. She's making her confession. Um, although she only nods, she doesn't actually say, I took the doll. Uh, but then she's like, I'm leaving. So I think we can, in fact, believe that she's getting in her car and leaving. And then the pain in the side from the from the non-antiseptic uh, hat pin is causing her, in fact, to lose control and to have this crash. So we're going to look at um, the second part on the next page on 140 down here. So this is the very last sentence of the book. I started to pack my bags, but moving slowly as if I were gravely injured, because she kind of is gravely injured. When the suitcases were ready, I dressed, put on my sandals, smoothed my hair. At that point, the cell phone rang. I saw Marta's name. I felt a great contentment. So I think we can, again, we really see if the end of the novel is, is, is you know, this contact between mother and daughter, I think that bolsters my argument that this notion of, of being connected with them is very important. Uh, I answered, she and Bianca in unison as if they had prepared the sentence and were performing it, exaggerating my Neapolitan cadence, shouted gaily into my ear. So you have both of the voices of the daughters speaking in unison. So it's as if, you know, it's almost like the twins, you know, Helen and, and Clytemnestra. You have this one voice that is coming, this one baby voice, this daughter voice that's coming for the mother. Mama, what are you doing? Why haven't you called? Won't you at least let us know if you're alive or dead? So this idea of them saying all of that in unison is, is a little cumbersome. And I think, again, it's adding to this idea of kind of the surreal surreality, the, like the, the irreality of this world. And then, deeply moved, I murmured, I'm dead, but I'm fine. Yikes. So this is, I mean, this is a very creepy ending to this book in lots of ways. But this idea of I'm dead, it could mean I'm dead tired. It could mean... Um, I'm, I'm dead, like I'm, I'm out, like I'm leaving here. It could mean I'm dead. I don't think she actually is dying. But very importantly, Elena Ferrante is, is leaving us, is leaving that opening. She can say, so I think you could argue here that like with their voices in unison and this weird thing that they say, you could argue in fact that this is like beyond the grave, you know, that she has died somehow and that these are voices that she is hearing. Um, I mean, I don't really see the, the data to support the idea of her dying anywhere before this because she's packing her bags and she's with Nina who 
as far as we can tell from the prose, is a real person. Uh, but you do have this kind of eerie and strange phone call that's coming from the girls. So I want to take a look now from this last sentence, I'm dead, but I'm fine. I also think the fact that she says, but I'm fine as the second part, and that's what we're ending with, I think that also supports my argument that in fact she is not dead. If she said, I'm fine, but I'm dead, I think then you would have a stronger argument that she in fact dies at the end of the book. So, but now we're gonna go back because chronologically now she leaves the house with her hat pin wound and she goes and she gets in her car and she's driving back north to go back to Florence. So we're gonna look at page 10. Um, just, we're gonna read the top part here, which we just read, but we're gonna just read that last part. The only serious injury was in my left side, an inexplicable lesion. So it's not exactly inexplicable. It is um, at this point in the novel, if you're on page two, but we in fact know that this is from the hat pin. So then we have this next paragraph. And importantly, this is the last paragraph in the first chapter. My friends from Florence came, Bianca and Marta returned, and even Gianni, who's her husband, ex-husband. I said it was drowsiness that had sent me off the road, but I knew very well that drowsiness wasn't to blame. At the origin was a gesture of mine that made no sense, and which, precisely because it was senseless, I immediately decided not to speak of to anyone. The hardest things to talk about are the ones we ourselves can't understand. I love this. So I think, I mean, I love the ending. I love the like, I'm dead, but I'm fine. Like it's very dark and, and really mysterious in lots of ways. But I love this idea here uh, of this idea. So she has this gesture and we can assume that the gesture is that she stole the baby doll. She refers to it a couple of times in the book as a gesture. And she's certainly confused about why she did it. Even at the end, it's not clear to her why she did it. And there are lots of reasons. You know, we, we read one of them, which is that this doll is sort of this perfect, um, you know, manifestation of this kind of idyllic vision she has of motherhood. There are lots of different reasons. Or she's, you know, using it as a, a sort of model of catharsis to sort of uh, work out some of her issues about not having her daughters near her or she's working through stuff with her mom. I mean, there are lots of different ways you can interpret her wanting to have that baby doll, as weird as that is. But that is the gesture, the most obvious gesture. But I also will argue that there were other gestures that you can sort of point to. One of them, I mean, it's a big gesture, but this idea of having left her daughters uh, you know, that, that was something that, that didn't make sense to her necessarily at the time. She felt like she was, you know, not able to be her own self. But then it turns out that that wasn't, that didn't work. It's not exactly a gesture, but there is something about that same thing as having, having a kind of weight. And then there are a couple of other instances. The, the most salient one is when they pick up those hitchhikers when they're in Calabria, and uh, one of them is named Brenda. And in a kind of a whim, just as a simple gesture, she suggests that they come to the house. And it's this kind of rebirth for her, in part because she gives Brenda her paper and then Brenda passes it along to the professor with whom Leda goes on to have the affair. So you have this sense of this encounter with this woman, Brenda, which is also very sexualized because 
um, Lita has essentially kind of this sexual rebirth after the two hitchhikers have left her home. So there's this idea of, um, of, of Lita there really as, as making a simple gesture, just a sort of a, a, an off the cuff offer to these people. And, and yet it has huge repercussions. So this idea of, of this gesture, she's definitely referring here to, to the like having stolen the baby, but also this idea of, of small gestures that in fact take on much more importance. Uh, but it is important too, she decided she wasn't going to speak of it to anyone. You are left a little bit wondering like, why are all these people coming down if she only has this minor lesion? Um, and I think that we are meant to maybe assume that this was a suicide attempt and that everyone is there to support her. Uh, that, that's certainly one interpretation. I don't know that it's the only one. Okay, so um, we are just about done with this, but I do want to uh, just underscore the fact that this is my own argument, you know, this, this whole notion of, of mothers and daughters as not being able to individuate. And that's the reason why we have all of these different sort of pairings and, and different sort of um, groupings of these mothers and daughters and why the names are also similar. Um, so you can interpret these things any way you want. I was giving you kind of my very best attempt at, at, at a larger, interpretation of a book that is haunting and interesting and mysterious and very open-ended. So there are lots of different ways that you can read these things. And that's really one of the beautiful things of literature. It's very personal. It has everything to do with your own experience and what you bring to the text. So I'm not going to say that no answer is um, wrong. Wait, is that how you would say that? I mean, they're definitely wrong answers. There are definitely some bad interpretations. And in fact, a bunch of them are in print and are in interviews that different people have given uh, about this, this book. So I like to think that I, mine are very well researched and so hopefully not just like wrong, like some of their just like actual data was wrong. Um, but I will say that really one of the joys of this book is, is having your own interpretation. So I'm hoping that I didn't narrow that for anyone, but I'm also hoping that perhaps there were just a couple of things that you might not have picked up on that came to light during this uh, three-part lecture on The Lost Daughter. So head back to the Fox page and find something else that you want to dive into. And thank you very much for listening. Please come back and uh, read something else with me. Happy reading.